Well, I want to welcome all of you to the May 19th episode of the Montana DSA podcast. Uh, DSA is the Democratic Socialists of America and the Montana chapters of DSA formed a committee back during the, uh, just prior to the legislative session to look at legislative issues. And then they commissioned us in the Helena chapter of DSA to do a series of podcasts. And we've done 22 so far. So today's our 23rd. We've interviewed people on a whole variety of issues and um, some legislators, some people who are lobbyists. Um, our most, one of our most recent uh, episodes with uh, <coughs> was with uh, Representative Zoe Zephyr from Missoula, uh, the first transgender uh, representative in the Montana legislature who was, of course, uh, manhandled by the uh, Republican leadership and not allowed to speak. Uh, but DSA has been concerned about social justice issues and basic democracy for all areas of life, politics, economics, culture, um, since its founding in 1982. Some of us from the Helena chapter were actually founding members like myself who attended the 1982 chapter of uh, founding of, of DSA in Detroit. DSA then is Democratic Socialists of America and our issues have been related to those basic issues of you know, creating democracy in all areas of life, economic and social justice, <clears throat> ending oppression, ending sexism, all the kinds of things that uh, the um, founders of DSA uh, wanted to push us into. And so our guest today is Jeff Busher, who is the Community Impact Coordinator for the United Way of the Lewis and Clark area here in Montana. Jeff has been in that position since 2019 and has uh, been working throughout the community on basic issues of uh, of concern to you know low-income people, to people who have been pushed out of the arena of, of human needs by poverty, uh, people who have uh, uh, been on the streets as, as homeless, houseless people. Um, he's been working in that position, but prior to his being in the uh, United Way position here, he was a person who worked at uh, William Jewell College in Missouri from 2004 to 2019 in a variety of ways. He was their service learning professor. He was a chaplain and director of community services there. And he was a village partners co-director. Village partners is a project that's very interesting. Um, it was a project of reaching out with, for community development with partners in Zambia, Honduras, Thailand, India, and, and other places. And so it brings a very, uh, background of, of uh, work to his position here in the United Way. And today, we want to uh, ask Jeff to be in a dialogue with us about the issues that he is currently working on, the ones that he sees are you know very important, uh, the things we need to know about those issues. Um, and uh, he's been you know, involved in a project here in Helena called Moving the Dial on creating affordable housing for all. Uh, as part of that work is in the United Way, he's always involved and in, has been involved in the point in time survey of uh, homelessness. And so um, the results of that have uh, just been um, released. 
So I want to just welcome Jeff Busher uh, to our uh, podcast and and ask him uh, uh, what kinds of things he would you know like to discuss with us today. Jeff, welcome. Great. Thank you very much, Frank. Thank you for that introduction. And uh, uh, you know what? Let me begin uh, because uh, of our uh, work, uh, your work, and the group with DSA sponsoring this podcast. I will start with a little bit of legislative conversation. Um, I think uh, we don't know yet. I don't think the governor has signed the housing bill, but uh, I did get to do some uh, testifying in committee on some efforts for funding for shelters to provide services like uh, mental health services and addiction services at local shelters. That particular bill is House Bill 380, but I understand some shuffling has occurred and, and a lot of things got put into one bill. And I don't even know the number of that right now, but uh, they did come up with a finished product that I am hearing has a lot of good help for uh, our housing situation across Montana, but I, I just, have not had the time to keep up with all that that entails. Maybe, maybe you know more about that finished product than I do. But but I, I know um, that the governor has at least given voice to the concern of housing and um, had a task force and all those kinds of things. Uh, but, but frankly, uh, I, I, we have yet to see real substance uh, come of that uh, of this recent legislature, and that's disappointing. And what it does is puts the burden of the work on nonprofits across the state. I was on a call last week uh, with uh, Billings uh, was on the call, Bozeman, Butte, Missoula, uh, Great Falls, Helena, and everyone was concerned about folks coming off the Montana Emergency Rental Assistance Program that paid out a lot of money to put unsheltered families and individuals in hotels, but that those funds are ending right now. And as a result, all of our communities, all the nonprofits, all the agencies that deal with our unsheltered population are seeing a significant bump, a significant increase and in folks uh, kind of landing on the street, coming out of these hotels and needing services. So it's a it's a very current challenge. Thankfully, it is warm, uh, but we kind of have the summer to address these concerns because we all know it's going to get cold again in Montana, and these folks need a place to stay, uh, whether that's transitional, emergency shelters, warming shelters. There are a lot of different solutions out there but we've got to find a way to uh, care for uh, some of our most vulnerable populations. So um, yeah, that's what I'll say about uh, our legislative work. Um, we can do better on a, on a state level, on a city and county level, uh, and we are working closely with our commissioners and uh, trying, to, trying to move the dial, if you will, uh, to make that happen. So. Uh, I'll transition from that 
And unless you want to raise any questions there, and uh, I'll move into our point in time survey results. But um, anything else you want me to say about uh, kind of the big picture and uh, legislature and uh, the progress we are trying to make in that arena? Well, I, I certainly have more questions, but I think this point in time survey will reveal some of the extent of the of the housing uh, uh, seriousness housing crisis seriousness in Helena. So let's turn to that and then uh, we can talk about uh, you know, how we assess exactly uh, what we're up against. We know we're up against tremendous challenges in the area of housing, uh, but let's take um, some time to listen to what you've learned in the point in time survey. You can also explain what the point in time survey is. It sounds like uh, somebody would at one time particular take some talk to some people and get get some um, answers to some questions, but what is it and what did it reveal? You bet. Uh, HUD sponsors uh, every year on the fourth Thursday in January, this year in 2023, it was January 26th. Uh, and it's called the point in time survey because um, technically the survey is open for one week. Uh, but the question is asked, have you taken this, you know, the first question is, have you taken this survey before? And the reason it's called point in time, because technically for one 24-hour period, those who work with the unsheltered uh, rally teams of volunteers to go out into their community and locate <clears throat> folks who are unsheltered and interview them um, and understand that not all folks are interviewed. So these are actual interview results. In fact, I'll talk for a moment about what I call observational results that uh, truly change the numbers and maybe give us a more accurate picture of our local setting. So the point in time survey uh, happens in every community. Of course, we're responsible for Lewis and Clark County. And, uh, and in fact, we reach out to Townsend and Boulder and uh, all the way up to Lincoln and uh, uh, Wolf, Wolf Creek and, and uh, uh, Augusta uh, when we do this survey. So we try to be as thorough as possible to locate our unsheltered folks. So that's what the point in time survey is. It occurs every year. I have our numbers for the last five years. I'd be happy to share those. Uh, and, and, I, and I'll begin, I guess, by doing that. Um, in 2019, our total, not far from where we are right now, was 168, 168, and that's in Lewis and Clark uh, County. And uh, then in 2020, I'll say this about 2020 and 2021 uh, were, well, obviously COVID years. And we did not do interviews. We did what we called an observational count. Folks were sent out and simply noted people who were unsheltered visually, and we didn't conduct interviews. As a result, those numbers were higher. In 2020, we had 196. In 2021, we had 298. And then last year in 2022, we uh, were down to 143, and this year's results for the uh, Lewis and Clark area were 164 uh, 
unsheltered folks. And let me explain the count, how it's broken out. Um, these are unsheltered folks, but some of them may be staying in uh, emergency shelter, places like the Pavarello Center in Missoula, places like God's Love here in Helena, uh, places like um, the YWCA in, in transitional housing. And that also includes the jail. If we have folks who are in the county detention center, um, who if they were not in the county detention center would be unsheltered, they are counted, okay? And so uh, this year's breakdown was 145 of those folks. And remember, <laughs> January 26 was a very cold night. It wasn't it wasn't 40 below, but it was it was about 10 degrees that night. I think somewhere between 10 and 15 degrees that night. Um, so 145 of those folks were in shelters, uh, in one shelter or another, uh, either emergency or uh, yeah, an emergency shelter. 19 of those were actually on, on the street or potentially in a car uh, if they were out and able to be interviewed. So that's the breakdown. 145 were sheltered, 19 were unsheltered, uh, so actually outside. So that total again for 2023 was 164. Now, uh, let, me, let me say a couple other numbers about this year's count. As I, I had roughly 30 volunteers who went out into the Helena area and uh, interviewed uh, people. We send them out. Uh, they, you can do the interview on the on your phone. It's about 20 questions. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's about 20 questions. And so when we send them out in pairs, in teams, they uh, also give uh, gift cards and uh, socks and snacks and things. And we thank folks for being a part of the interview process. Um, so as again, our results were 164. In that process, I also asked for what I called observational data and notes. In other words, if they saw a car that was occupied by a person, we do not encourage our volunteers to go knock on the window of that car just for safety reasons. Uh, same thing with a camper or a truck. Um, if it's occupied, somebody's staying in that camper and it's not hooked up to services, then we can assume that person is using that as temporary lodging. We, we came back that night with 40 people staying in vehicles uh, that night that were not interviewed, okay? So add 40 people to that count of 164, you end up over 200 people. The other thing we did was we went to the hotels in the area that are were housing folks using MIRA funding, Montana Emergency, Emergency Rental Assistance Funding. And uh, our best count were 150 rooms in three different hotels were being uh, occupied by Mira recipients, okay? So of those 150, and we did, and by the way, one thing I'll mention about the point in time survey, you actually have one week to collect the data. So we did spend the following week at one of the hotels that had a significant number of Mira recipients there. We spent the week in the lobby 
and we interviewed roughly 40 of those residents. And um, so of that 150, 40 of them were counting. So what I'm suggesting is there were still 100 other people who were receiving MIRA funds who were housed temporarily in hotels. So that brings our number, if it's 164, add the 40 that were in vehicles, there's 200, add 100 that were in hotels using MIRA funds, that puts our number really closer to uh, 400 people uh, uh, in terms of unsheltered in in the Helena area, okay? And, uh, and with that, with that out outreach that, that uh, your teams do also, the outreach to some of the encampments on the edge of town where people are living in tents and so forth? Right. Yes, we, we uh, look under bridges. We look where we know encampments are. And uh, we, that's, that's why we send folks out in, in, onto the streets. Now I'll say this, those cold temperatures in January, to my understanding, that is probably why uh, HUD has chosen to do this survey in January because people are easier to find because our unsheltered population are very resourceful. And if there is a warm place to sleep, they will find it. And so it just makes them easier to count and to locate because right now uh, we know that there are encampments, <coughs> excuse me, up in some of the valleys around Helena that if we did the count right now, uh, it'd, be, it'd be much more uh, challenging to get out to those encampments because uh, the other reality, and again, for safety reasons, folks become a little bit protective uh, when they're out in their encampments and doing those kinds of things. So, so the answer is yes, we do send them to locations we learn about. But folks in the wintertime will sometimes sleep in the lobby at the uh, Criminal Justice Center. Um, folks will sometimes sleep in uh, lobbies of uh, uh, businesses and things like that. And we know those locations, and that's where we send folks out to. So you would say that in your, you were able to count about 400 unhoused persons. Now that picture in my mind is, is a partial one because I'm sure that there are more. And I often say to myself, I live behind a veil of ignorance because I, I don't go out and survey every little nook and cranny of town. But one of the groups of people that would not be counted in that survey would be people like people I've known who uh, were essentially living in uh, mold infested trailer parks in a trailer that no human being should actually live in. And this was a friend of mine and, and a group of us you know, somehow found some resources to help this person get out of that mold infested uh, trailer uh, and got him to get a HUD section eight voucher so he could find some decent apartment in town. Well, that person was not counted in anybody's survey he knows a lot of people who are on the streets who call this person, who call him all the time for help. But here he was living in a mold infested trailer. When he got into the HUD Section 8 uh, voucher program, he found that he was still essentially stuck in that trailer park uh, trailer because he had no phone. 
and he had no car. So he couldn't call to find out if, if, uh, if the housing, the, the apartment that he saw listed somewhere uh, was still available and, and he couldn't go there to visit it. So two people in Helena, one of whom was the mayor of Helena, Wilmot Collins, came to his aid and bought him a phone. Mayor Wilmot Collins bought him a phone so he could call. And some other friends in town who were members of the uh, Helena Progressive Action Network heard about this and gave him a car. Well, so he was very fortunate because I can tell you that there are you know dozens of other people that I know personally who are who have been in situations where they really are were unable to say that they were living in adequate housing, but they were on a on a uh, subsidized housing list that had hundreds of people whose names were above them on the list. And so they were really desperate. And in some cases, we were able to, you know, help them, you know, find some resources. But so the 400 is just a small portion of those. Those persons unhoused, um, you know, might still be unhoused, or they might be going to a place where uh, no human being should be living because of mold or or uh, or domestic violence situation. I, I recall years ago, Paul Miller, a sociologist from the University of Montana, was saying, "What you have to understand about uh, hunger in Montana is that there's a group of people in deep poverty, and it's mostly women, but they live in situations where of domestic violence where they can't get out, and so they have no place. So that yes, they have a house." but they're beaten up in that house regularly. And so it's not like being housed. It's like being trapped in right. a place that could be called a house by somebody who happened to be walking by and saw that there were windows and doors, but those are not acceptable. And so the situation of 400 people is atrocious, but it's also the tip of the iceberg in terms of the crisis that we're facing. Oh, you're right, Frank. And um, you're right. Beyond our unsheltered population, there is a the next level up, if you will, is unstably housed, or as you've just described, unsafely housed. Uh, and and um, there there are um, a host of upstream issues that we'll talk about in just a moment. But let me uh, let me finish our point in time numbers from across the state. And then we'll talk about some of those uh, upstream issues, if you will. Does that sound okay? Yes, sounds good, Jeff. Go ahead. All right. Um, so as I look at our numbers from across the state, I mentioned that our total this year was 164. Uh, the highest number in the state right now is Billings with uh, 598 on their uh, point in time uh, un, uh, unsheltered count. Um, the next is uh, Missoula at 356. And after that, we have uh, Kalispell, Ronan area at 263, and uh, Bozeman, Livingston at 261. Uh, and then Great Falls is at 217. Uh, Hamilton was at 120. Uh, as I mentioned, Helena was in there with 164, and we had a small count uh, done in Haver, and they showed 10 people. Um, Lewistown showed two, but my sense is that uh, 
they they were probably a part of another survey. So that's that's what it looks like across the state. The total number. I'm sorry, I have a page here with the total number, but it was over two thousand. Um, and I'll uh, sorry, I don't have that right in front of me, but over two thousand. Uh, folks from our point in time survey across the state. Uh, and um, so that's, again, this is not just a local issue. Uh, this is nationwide. Uh, we, and, and, you know, big picture um, population has grown. Uh, and I heard someone describe, uh, ask this question, do we have an attainable home crisis or do we have an income crisis. We know that people's income has not kept pace with the inflation of home values and uh, rental uh, increases that have skyrocketed since and during COVID. Uh, and we just know that people's earning power has not kept pace with that. So, so this is <laughs> this is a big issue, a challenging problem. Uh, and folks are getting very creative. We uh, talked for a second about solutions. Folks have created tiny homes. We're talking about land trusts. Our folks at Habitat can't build houses fast enough because uh, one way to keep houses affordable is, uh, and I'll go back to the land trust, is put the land in a trust so that you're not purchasing the land in the house. A person can invest in the house the land stays with the land trust. And so, and you may have some equity build up in the home over the time you stay in that home. And when you sell it, you can essentially walk away with that equity, but the land stays with the land trust. Um, so uh, that's one way to keep housing affordable. But um, this is, uh, you know, as I mentioned, tiny homes, folks are converting uh, old hotels and hospitals into affordable housing across the country. Uh, folks in California are actually doing a matchmaking service of house sharing, where a senior adult may house share with a college student who's looking for affordable housing. Uh, so as I think about Helena and uh, many of our baby boomers and um, folks like me who are just two people now, sometimes living I, 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 I built a uh, smaller home, downsized, but some folks in the community may be two people living in a larger home, and they could uh, either build an ADU, an accessory dwelling unit, a small, uh, what I used to call mother-in-law cabin, if you will, on their property, which is allowable in the city of Helena, or they may have some extra rooms in their home that they could rent, loan out, um, whatever, uh, to folks who may, an individual who may need housing. So, so there are a lot of creative solutions to this housing shortage across the country, but uh, we need to begin to start thinking outside the box and thinking about some of these uphill issues. So, uh, and, and I'm gonna say one other thing while we're still on the pit uh, count numbers, um, and I'm sorry, we went, uh, downstream just a little bit there talking about solutions, but I want to remind folks that our HUD point in time count uh, considers someone unsheltered if they are, if they were uh, not in an emergency shelter 
they would be living somewhere unfit for human housing. Sometimes that's a, a car. Sometimes that's a camper. Sometimes it's a lean-to or a tent, uh, those kinds of things. Uh, the school district, who we've seen numbers this year, uh, and we're getting an update on those numbers, but we saw numbers uh, about a month ago in the neighborhood of 300 to 380 uh, students who were counted as unsheltered or homeless. And they use a different standard than HUD. What they use is the McKinney-Vento standard, which means if someone is couch surfing, if someone is staying with uh, not their primary family, with a relative, if someone is in their car, or if they are um, uh, just couch surfing with friends, the school district considers them uh, homeless. And so that is one reason that their numbers are significantly higher, because as we know, Though all of those situations will affect the student's ability to focus on uh, the work they're trying to do to get an education. And so they have uh, a different set of standards they work by. Now, I will say this, based on looking at our point in time numbers and the information shared from uh, the school district, we did identify roughly 30 students who were who fit both standards. They were actually unsheltered. They were either living in a car or a place on, on uh, not fit for human uh, uh, housing. So, so of that 380, a lot of them are in homes, in a place, but, but roughly 30 to 40 of those were um, literally unsheltered. So so yeah, I'll point that out and we can uh, move on to our move the dial conversations. But any other questions about the PIT information? And by the way, I'm happy to share this document with you. They put together an infographic. It's about six pages of numbers across the uh, across the state. And I'll be happy to share you that with you, Frank, and we can put that out as a uh, accessory piece to this uh, podcast. Good, that'd be very good. One other thing I want to mention in terms of uh background information like the point in time survey is a document that I know you're familiar with uh, because we've discussed this or portions of it in meetings. It's the 2018 Triconi housing assessment. And my recollection was that a couple things, you know, jumped out to me was that, um, that there were possibly 560 family units moving into the Lewis and Clark County area every year. But there were only 350 or so units being constructed. So apart from considering whether or not these people had jobs or not, there were not enough house for people who were moving into the area for a variety of reasons. And there was a 2% vacancy rate for apartments. And now that vacancy rate has gone down to something like 1.2%. And so if you were in a situation of, um, Having some money, uh, looking for a place um, in the Helena area, uh, you're still dealing with a vacancy rate of that would probably keep you from finding a place to rent if you were. And so you wouldn't be considered uh, homeless because you're not, or unhoused because you're not on the streets being counted by United Way and its teams or out in a shelter, but 
uh, you're living on in somebody else's house or you're you're living in a place where you shouldn't be living and so the dimensions of this this uh, crisis get really deeper and deeper and i just want to mention the last thing we could turn on to other topic other uh, issues but a little while ago, I interviewed the housing navigator at Good Samaritan Ministries here in town, which is a uh, thrift store and uh, assistance uh, program of the Catholic Diocese. And this person said, Frank, you, you shouldn't call the situation in Helena a housing crisis. It's an emergency. It's a housing emergency. And she pointed to her filing cabinet of, that had hundreds of folders with names of people she had interviewed who were trying to find some way to get into a place where they could live. And so um, the more I think about it, um, I realized you know, that unhoused sounds like you're alive, but uh, you're not necessarily gonna be alive for two more days if you're out in the middle of, 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 uh, of uh, an encampment uh, with no heating. So you could be dead the next day. It, it is a, an emergency for very, very many people. That's, yes, that's true. Um, and as I said, the, we have a number of uh, nonprofit agencies really trying to do the heavy lifting of trying to meet the needs of these folks. But the fact that there are waiting lists at Helena Housing Authority, at Red Alder, at some of our uh, attainable home situations around town, Emmy Anderson, The Guardian. Uh, these are places that have uh, tried to meet the needs of senior adults, disabled folks who show the greatest need but I know that there are waiting lists uh, that are a year to two years long. And when um, our friends like uh, John Seck or, or St. at, at Carroll College or uh, the director at St. Peter's Health are trying to bring in doctors, are trying to bring in college professors. And uh, I wanna say two years ago, I remember and they could not, they had four or five professors they were trying to hire at the college and they had to, they had to turn down the opportunity because there were, was no housing in Helena uh, for them. So this, this, as I mentioned, the upstream effects affect folks who are precariously housed, folks who are unsafely housed, who are, I think of uh, my kids, uh, thankfully, they uh, found a home. They, they've been in Helena for years, and about 10 years ago, they built a home. But in today's market, uh, we have folks who are living in campers at their parents' houses uh, because that's all they can do right now. And, and uh, adult children, uh, what, I guess what we would call starter homes, Starter homes that are selling for $400,000 is not a starter home. I mean, come on. Uh, even for a college educated person who is starting their first job would have to be earning 80 to over $100,000 a year to afford a $400,000 home. So again, it's that discrepancy uh, that, that, and the other thing I'll say, 
is we didn't get here overnight. This, this problem, this challenge has uh, built up over time and we're, and we're unfortunately not gonna be able to fix it overnight, but I do this work hoping to do the things we can right now so that 10 years from now, Frank, we're not having the same conversation. We are uh, finding ways to house our most vulnerable populations, our, our lower income individuals, even our middle income individuals uh, in ways that offer dignity and respect. And, and, and one thing we don't wanna do is segregate these folks. Uh, we need to incorporate them across the community. Uh, we saw in Chicago what it was like to create projects that became centers for crime and other activities. And so uh, we do not want to just put them all in one hotel and say the problem is solved. That is not a solution. We as a community have got to find a uh, planned, appropriate way to address this issue. Um, and one thing I'll say real quickly, I wanna mention the FUSE program. Frequent users of systems engagement have identified uh, the top 40, and they do this on an ongoing basis, they have two case managers. They identified folks who are utilizing the hospital or emergency room as their healthcare. And uh, of course they, they cannot pay for those services, but they are there frequently. They uh, uh, use uh, the services of the county detention center uh, because they want to, they'll do a minor infraction so that they can get inside the jail and stay warm for a few days. Um, they've identified what we come, sometimes call the frequent flyers utilizing those resources and have assigned case managers to them. And they, they have just been doing this work for a little under a year now and they have already saved the city, and I don't, don't have the statistics in front of me right now, they have saved the city thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, by keeping people out of the emergency rooms and out of the detention center and uh, trying to get them connected with actual doctors, connected with housing, and uh, uh, keeping them out of the jail and utilizing those services. So that is one uh, success story uh, that uh, we, we've seen. And by the way, I'll, I'll come back to this, but uh, they sponsor a housing is healthcare summit. And we're planning that for the middle of October. And we'll say more about that as that approaches, but uh, uh, we'll be able to celebrate some of the victories from that FUSE program. You know, as you were mentioning the FUSE program, I, I was just flashing back to a couple of months ago. Uh, for a person that I think probably did get connected to the FUSE program, though, because of confidentiality issues at the hospital, uh, I can't find out more information, but I was driving down the street by the Helen Indian Alliance on the west side of town, and I saw this woman sitting on the, on the curb, holding her head and her leg. And I was saying, what is going on? So I stopped and talked with her. She was crying. And she was telling me she'd just beat, beaten up by her boyfriend. And I tried to, and she was really down on herself saying that she was to blame for this. You know, like a lot of victims of domestic violence there, they've got this poor self image, but I managed to get a nurse from the Helen Indian Alliance out to come and help. 
And then we got the police department over to come take her to the hospital because she was in deep pain. And, and so she got to the hospital. But, um, you know, I'm not sure what would have happened to this person if I just happened, didn't happen to be running by. And, and I can't be the only one who's, who's seeing people in situations like that who don't, you know, people we don't know. And most people are in this, in this unsheltered, un unhoused program we never talk to, we never see. So they're invisible in many ways, although people do complain every once in a while about homeless people on the streets um, making a scene that uh, those people don't want to see because they're begging and, and, and uh, maybe uh, uh, disruptive because of, of the, the challenges that they have. But it's, it's, a, it's a thing where when you actually meet somebody by accident in this, in this way that I did, you get just a, just a glimmer because uh, I've, I've known you know, many, many people uh, through our DSA and through our Helena Progressive Action Network who, uh, who are in dire straits and are, are some of the people that the United Way Infuse and, and other programs are trying to help. Uh, well, let me, let me go let ahead. Me, uh, yeah, let me real quickly, an aside, a project we were involved with, uh, with the Business Improvement District in downtown Helena. Um, businesses uh, on the Gulch uh, in our business district, in our tourist di district actually, uh, reached out to us because um, they, uh, often our unsheltered uh, neighbors, will um, uh, frequent the downtown area. And the business owners needed some guidance on how to appropriately um, interact with our unsheltered neighbors. And so uh, this is still uh, in process. It's being printed. But we put together, uh, uh, John Dendy, who runs the Business Improvement District, uh, a, a, frankly, an information page that uh, encourages folks. And, and just as a quick overview, first of all, get to know your neighbors. Get to know who your unsheltered folks are so that um, if they are um, sleeping on the sidewalk in front of your business, if they are coming into your business to stay warm, get to know them, you know, make it personal. Um, that's, that's a first step, get to know their name and, and interact with them on a dignified personal level. Secondly, if maybe someone has a mental health issue and, and are having some issues, uh, talk to them. Is there someone I can call? Is there something we can do? Can I help you? Uh, we do suggest that they not um, uh, offer them money or food, but rather that they, uh, first of all, reach out to our Good Samaritan outreach team, Mark Ney and Ara Babcock, and we, we actually have their phone numbers on that listing so that they can start with those folks. And these are people who know these people and can usually redirect them if they have challenges. Then there's the non-emergency police line if someone is being disruptive. And then lastly would be to call 911. So what we tried to put together was some helpful hints on how to interact with our unsheltered neighbors and uh, kind of a progression of uh, how to, uh, you know, address those needs. So, so that's just a, a small project we did, but 
uh, it, it addresses the thing you're talking about. We all have these encounters, um, and and how do we do, ma manage that properly? Good. I want to ask you about two additional uh, issues that we haven't specifically talked about okay. uh, that I know of from uh, reading materials that you shared. Um, well, actually, three. Uh, the first is that uh, upcoming is plans for some sort of town hall and meeting face-to-face uh, -face meeting with unhoused people, uh, probably at St. Paul's Methodist Church. Uh, so that's number one. Number two is the project that you began back in, I believe, maybe December or maybe even earlier called the Moving the Dial for Affordable Housing in Helena. See, tell us a little bit more about that. And then okay. a third piece would be uh, the Helena Clergy Advocates for Housing Group, which has started to meet as well to bring the churches uh, out of the uh, sidelines into the action. So if you could tell us about the uh, town hall and meeting with unhoused people and the uh, moving the dial project, uh, and then uh, also uh, something about the clergy uh, group that, that I know you're part of. You bet, we'll do that. Let me start with a, um, the town hall conversation has kind of divided into two uh, iterations, if you will. Coming up very soon, uh, I think we're going to do it on Tuesday, June 20th. You're probably aware that the St. Paul's Church has opened its doors on Tuesday mornings, and in partnership with United Way and Good Samaritans, we offer showers to our unsheltered neighbors. And uh, frankly, this summer, our numbers have increased. We're seeing about 20 uh, people every Tuesday morning. And on June 20th, we're going to offer... Um, haircuts, uh, possibly some foot care, um, and we're going to provide a lunch. And, uh, and then following, included with the lunch, will be a, uh, at least a one-hour uh, listening session with our unsheltered neighbors. We want to hear from them uh, what they perceive, uh, <laughs> I guess I'm going to say it this way, how could Helena do a better job of serving our unsheltered population. Um, let them uh, offer their input because frankly, we do not listen to them enough. Um, and so we're gonna have that conversation on June 20th from roughly noon to one, uh, following a, a light lunch uh, uh, provided by uh, the church folks. So. Um, that that's coming up relatively quickly. Um, you asked me about move the dial, and uh, I want to mention that very briefly. And you alluded earlier to the 2018 uh, housing needs assessment survey that was done. In that document, there were seven pages of goals and action plans. And uh, last winter, uh, I had a minor bout with COVID and had time on my hands. And I looked at those uh, seven pages of goals and action plans and divided those into uh, uh, five categories. Uh, and these are the categories. And these are what we created as move the dial action teams. The first is the lead team which uh, deals with partnerships and development and progress, frankly, for uh, these issues. And, and that is uh, also known as 
the uh, Helena Housing Task Force, or frankly, it's the Area Housing Task Force. And that group is currently convened by the city of Helena. So that serves as the lead team uh, because it's driven by that Tri-County Housing Needs Assessment Survey. Uh, and part of also what drove this work is Lewis and Clark County's Community Health Improvement Plan identified homelessness and housing as one of the three major health issues to be focused on in this three-year period, which we're roughly into the first year, uh, well into the first year of that process. So because the CHIP demonstrated that housing was a significant need, uh, we were kind of given the lead on addressing housing issues. And that's what led me to do the study of the Tri-County Housing Needs Assessment Survey and basically come up with these four groups. And the four groups, we broke those categories down to were, of course, the lead team is one. And then the four subgroups are these. Vulnerable populations, folks like elderly, disabled, unsheltered. And as we've studied vulnerable populations, we've found other groups. Um, we've found uh, students aging out of uh, foster care. We've found um, domestic violence uh, survivors. Uh, we've found uh, folks who are challenging to house, like uh, folks who have had uh, pass uh, of uh, detention of various kinds. So there is a, a number of vulnerable populations. So that's team one. Team two is a trying to work with density issues. How do we create um, how do we create apartments, multifamily units, uh, rentals, and and how do we address density issues? Uh, there's funding streams. How do we fund some of these projects? One team is looking at um, where are the grants? Where's the federal dollars? Where's the state and, and local dollars to <laughs> address these issues? And the fourth team is policy and planning. Are, do we have policies? Are there, red, are there red tape issues that can be um, addressed and changed to make um, attainable homes uh, more uh, accessible to folks? So that's the move the dial process. Uh, it's been a challenge. We've started in January. We've tried to have monthly meetings. I'm probably going to put a little bit of a pause on for part of the summer. Not that we're not going to be doing things, but during the summer, I want to have more one-on-one -on -one interviews with folks who are serving on these teams to help us focus our efforts so that we start uh, the ball rolling in uh, August or September with some very specific uh, plans on how you know, are there specific issues where we can focus our energy and actually, as we say, move the dial. So that's that's the move the dial process. And uh, as we created these teams, one other team kind of bubbled up on its own. And that's the group you mentioned, the clergy advocates. Um, Charles Way, the pastor at uh, Plymouth Congregational Church, uh, brought together uh, a number of faith communities. And we're talking not just churches, but our Jewish community, uh, our Baha'i community, um, the, the unity folks, uh, a number of faith communities came together and said, A, we want to be informed about our unsheltered population, but also we need some direction 
how can we how can we be involved in being a part of the solution? So, uh, and that group has just met, uh, I think, about three times, and they are uh, continuing, and they'll meet again soon uh, or or as needed. But we are uh, providing that. And let me give you one example. Uh, we haven't got a lot of traction on this, but uh, a very successful program in Salem, uh, Oregon, was. Uh, uh, faith communities offered their parking lots as safe parking spaces. And I think that is something we could look at here in Helena, but that takes time because uh, uh, faith communities need to have that conversation. Are they willing to uh, do that? Um, and I understand there are liabilities involved and all those kind of things, but, but we are at least having that conversation to see if that is one way uh, we can assist uh, locally. So uh, yeah, there's a quick overview of Move the Dial. Folks can folks can contact me if they'd like to be involved in these conversations, or or certainly contact me about being a part of the uh, clergy advocates group as well. And so they can just look up United Way of the Lewis and Clark area on online, and they'll find your um, web website and phone number and so forth. It should be there, and if not, they can just call the United Way. We actually had a small issue with our website where our um, uh, our bios disappeared for a couple of days. Hopefully, that's been resolved. But yes, yes, either on website uh, through the United Way or simply call the office and they can reach me. Yes, I thought I'd noticed that several pieces of the United Way website seem to be missing from the last time I looked at it. I was going to ask you one thing if if I'm not sure how involved you've been, but, but it's the Our Redeemers Lutheran Church Project, which is a partnership with uh, Rocky Mountain Development Council, which is the Human Resource Development Council here, with the YWCA and Jen Gursky and her, her team, and also with Helena Habitat for Humanity. It, it embodies a lot of elements, and I know a little bit about it uh, because uh, I've seen a report by Gretchen Krum crumb rather from mm. from our redeemers lutheran that, it, that outlined some of that project but it's a community land trust the the church has put you know acres of unused land into a or is going to put it into a community land trust and they'll be building apartments that will always be uh, affordable for um low and moderate income people so it sounds like a terrific project but uh, i'm not sure exactly how far they are into you know, gathering all the funding they need to pull this off. Yeah, I can give you a little bit of an update. I do not know all the details, but you're right. First of all, there's a lot of moving pieces because it is three organizations. Uh, and, and frankly, it's, it, it's genius in some respects because at the YWCA, these are folks coming directly off of the street with significant needs. So there's a transitional housing piece. And then uh, Rocky would ha also have uh, places for, for rent or uh, to be stayed at. And then with Habitat, those would be uh, affordable homes that would be built in partnership as Habitat does. Usually a cohort of three or four families will work on three or four homes at a time. And in the end, they can all move into those homes permanently. So, so the genius of it is that moving from being unsheltered to potentially 
short-term housing to transitional and then to permanent housing. Now, uh, I do know that uh, ARPA funds were granted to help with some infrastructure work, including a street uh, between, I'll say, Benton and uh, the Valley Road there. Uh, there were some access things that were needed and were going to be very expensive. So uh, the city commission approved uh, some ARPA funding to pay for some of that infrastructure. So that's a huge step forward uh, in that process. And uh, if you could explain what ARPA is, because I'm not sure everyone knows. Um, is uh, some COVID funding that was provided by the federal government to provide housing for folks during uh, during the pandemic, uh, there were certain dollars allotted uh, to communities, and uh, those dollars have to be expended, I think, by 2026. And so a portion of the local funding, some went to city projects, uh, again, mostly infrastructure, but this went to that project to help get it a little farther down the road. So, so that was a huge step forward, and that happened just in the last couple months. I want to pivot just a little bit, but to go back to something you mentioned about income as an issue in a lot of this um, problem. And of course, within DSA, Democratic Socialists of America, concern for the uh, tremendous wealth inequalities in the United States um, has always tied into its analysis of uh, why people uh, are divided into people who have all the housing they could ever want, including uh, housing that they'll never even use or visit, <laughs> just so they can rent it out to someone else or just to keep it for a weekend or something like that. And the vast majority of people who live paycheck to paycheck can't afford the current rental rates in Helena or anyplace else. And um, the, min the minimum wage in Montana is uh, not a livable wage. So there are lots of issues. I wonder if you could just give your thoughts about the whole income and wage uh, aspect of, of this problem, the wealth inequality problem that does uh, factor into so many issues that uh, explain why we have, you know, we have housing for certain kinds of people, but there never has been enough housing for people who are in the lower incomes. And I can recall reading, and I'm not sure where this was, and there's been, ever since HUD started, uh, I'm not sure if it was HUD at that time, but ever since 1948, when the federal government began having statistics on uh, housing, there's been a housing shortage. So we're talking about um, 84 years, 85 years of a problem and certainly way before that, because I'm sure that uh, prior to that time, it wasn't as if all of a sudden in 1948, housing became an issue. So what do you think about the, the other aspect of dealing with the uh, income inequality and the low wages and so forth and how that might figure into uh, plans to uh, get down to the root of this? Well, uh... <laughs> <laughs> Without getting too terribly philosophical, uh, I'll just say that uh, over in my lifetime, frankly, as you're as you're discussing this, um, you know, I grew up in one of those uh, Sears and Roebuck homes that uh, it was a cap home. Uh, my dad and the family built it, 
And as I go back and visit that home now, I think, wow, this is not a large home, <laughs> you know. But as a kid, you don't, you know, it's a different perspective. So, so, um, gosh, I'm going to use some vague generalities here, but in some senses, capitalism has not helped us um, take care of our most vulnerable populations. Um, Capitalism has helped, uh, as our friend Bernie says, the top 1%. Um, and um, uh, these folks who have plenty, uh, some are learning that they need to share that wealth to uh, help address some of these needs, but not enough. And um, I'll, I'll say it this way. In a place like Montana, in a red state where they talk about small government uh, and not a government not getting involved in social issues, what ends up happening, in my opinion, estimation, is that the work of addressing the needs of the most vulnerable popu populations falls to nonprofits. And so our nonprofits do fundraisers year round and participate in what I call voluntary taxation to fund their programs to address the needs of our most vulnerable populations. If, and, I, and I'm not saying, and I know DSA, socialism, um, I've celebrated uh, um, uh, in Canada with our, our friends up there, but, uh, but a socialism model shouldn't be scary to some people because what we need to do is find a middle ground where uh, government could offer assistance, more assistance to our most vulnerable populations to make housing more affordable. We could talk about the working class, uh, you know, jobs moving out of country, those kinds of things. But, but if we could get folks at the lower end of the spectrum, the basic needs and uh, provide some funding for that and not rely solely on the goodwill of uh, nonprofits and donors. Uh, somewhere in there, there's a middle ground where I believe better work could be done. Well, you mentioned our friend Bernie, but I just want to mention that you're referring to Bernie Sanders. Yes, I'm sorry. Bernie <laughs> Which, you know, probably most people would pick up on, but Bernie Sanders, of course, uh, was a democratic socialist. And yep. uh, my father was a democratic socialist. He was a he he attended with me the December night the March 1982 founding convention of DSA. Now I, my father had always been active in our neighborhood and in our community, and was in fact the most popular democratic vote getter for you know for uh, a couple of decades in South Bend, Indiana. But uh, he mentioned to me, well, you know. When I used to hear about socialism, it was always a bad word, you know, it was the kind of thing you should avoid. But he went with me to the founding convention, said, I'm interested in finding out more about it. And he became a founding member of DSA, Democratic Socialists of America. And I'm really uh, proud of my father for being so open because he was also a person who, uh, in a neighborhood where I lived in, in South Bend, Indiana, a racist town, uh, he was... He had friends in the black community and was non-racist, whereas in every other 
uh, house that I went into that I can think of in my neighborhood, um, people were talking about those damn niggers. And I would never hear that in my house. So DSA, of course, is a tradition of uh, caring for the most vulnerable, for leaving no one out. It's democratic socialism for the people and for all the people. And so um, I like your thought that uh, sometimes, sometimes people uh, uh, demonize it, but it, it is a tradition that I'm really proud to be part of and part of this dialogue in, in the uh, DSA podcast of a uh, group that Michael Harrington, who was one of the founders um, of DSA, uh, described as a seed buried under snow, democratic socialism as a seed buried under snow, which uh, may in the 21st century, and he wrote this back at the end of eight, 1989 or so, when he just before he died, he said, maybe it's like a seed buried under snow that will again start to bloom in the 21st century. Michael Harrington, of course, is the author, as some people might know of, of the famous book, The Other America, which uh, led uh, Lyndon Johnson, who had uh, many faults in many other ways with the Vietnam War, but to uh, uh, begin something that was called the War on Poverty. That got, that got sidetracked by the Vietnam War and other issues, but it's the kind of thing that uh, I think you know, really uh, coincides with your genuine strong commitment that I've seen over the last couple of years that I've known you to uh, social justice for the most vulnerable. Um, that's our mission. It's, it's not something else. It's, and that's what DSA is all about. And uh, that's what I see in you. And I really thank you for your commitment and, uh, and dedication to this work. I wanna give you a chance to make any final comments, uh, end up our podcast today, Jeff. Sure. Well, thank you again for this opportunity to share. There is a lot going on there. Uh, uh, frankly, my mindset is community development and collective impact, which means how important it is to have the right people at the table as we have these conversations that we can create meaningful, sustainable change. Uh, and one thing I may have I may have mentioned it briefly, but when you you asked about um, uh, a, a town hall meeting, I said there were going to be two iterations. One is the conversation we'll have at St. Paul's on uh, June 20th. The other piece of that, uh, a little farther down the road in October, as a part of the Housing is Healthcare Summit, which will be roughly uh, um, October uh, 10, 11, 12, right in that neighborhood there, uh, we are going to have a, a, a second version of a town hall conversation where we uh, will invite folks to be a part of a conversation that is really focused on looking for solutions, uh, breaking it down into some of these action teams and uh, have some discussions about real solutions. So that's coming up in October. I did want to mention that. And that's uh, part of the FUSE program, this Housing is Healthcare conversation, but a town hall conversation will be a part of that program. And it'll likely be at, Helen, at uh, Carroll College. Okay, great. Well, I want to end this conversation by reminding our listeners that we've been in a conversation with Jeff Busher, who is the Community Impact Coordinator for the United Way of the Lewis and Clark area. 
we've been talking about uh, all these issues related to affordable housing, income inequality, what is happening in, in the Helena area, some of the depths of the problems. And um, this is the 23rd episode in our Montana DSA podcast series. You can find all of them online. If you just do a web search for Montana DSA podcast, and you'll uh, get to find uh, not only this 23rd episode, but the previous 22 episodes. And we're continuing this series after the legislative session uh, because these issues we found are still alive and unsolved, um, even though we had a legislative session that was supposed to take care of the needs of the people. Well, thank you to everyone for being part of this uh, dialogue today. Jeff, again, blessings to you and thank you for your work. And thank you to all of our listeners for being part of us, uh, our conversation today. Thank you, honored to be here.